from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. First Samuel, the, the 15th chapter, verses 34, and then continuing uh, to chapter 16, verse 13. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. And the prophet Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that God had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the worship. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have not chosen him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and, and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open uh, this ancient word afresh to us so that we would be different people. That you'd meet us in such a way that we would be changed and transformed to face the moments we face to live the life you've called us to live. And we pray this in gratitude, knowing that you hear this prayer and will answer it. 
In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Well, I saw a, a story on my news feed uh, pop up that I could not believe. This past week, it just came up and I read and I thought, there is no way this is true. The headline read, Indiana Jones franchise turns 40. 40? I mean, is it really that old? Sure enough, Raiders of the Lost Ark had its theatrical debut on June the 12th, 1981. That's right. Those of you of a certain generation, 40, 40 years since they came out. I love that franchise. I love all of those films. One of my favorite scenes in the whole franchise comes from the third film, The Last Crusade. Played by Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones joins his father, played by Sean Connery, uh, in a quest to find the Holy Grail. Some of you have seen this film. You know how the story goes. They're looking for the cup of Christ, the cup that Christ used at his Last Supper. Legend had it that that anyone who drank from the cup of Christ would experience immortality. Well, toward the end of the film, the Jones men are with uh, some antagonists who are holding them against their will, and they make their way to a cave where it was believed that the Holy Grail was kept and, and guarded by generations by one of the Knights Templar. Before them, as they entered into this cave, was... Uh, was, was set a, a table, and, and in that table and in the nooks and crannies of the cave were, were hundreds upon hundreds of cups, hundreds of grails made from different materials and fashioned in different designs. And the knight asks them to choose a cup, to choose the cup they think is really the true cup of Christ, is the, is the grail. Well, one of the antagonists surveys all the cups, and suddenly his eyes are fixated on one cup in particular. It was made with solid gold, and it was adorned with countless jewels. And he says out loud to everyone there, surely this is the cup of Christ. Surely this is the cup fit for a king. And so he fills it with water, and he drinks of it. And, and if you've seen the film, you know it doesn't go well for him. Now it's Indy's turn, and Indy begins to scan his options, and he locates the most common, the most ordinary, and most simple cup of the lot. And he says to himself, this is the cup of a carpenter. This is the cup of an ordinary man. And he fills it with water, he drinks, and the knight says to him that he has chosen wisely. That scene from The Last Crusade has, I think, some synergy with our story from 1 Samuel today. We're jumping back into our sermon series. This is the third week in this summer series as we walk through these two volumes called the books of Samuel. Uh, we step in with a little bit of a knowledge gap between where we left off and where the people of God were calling to be like the other nations, they were calling God to give them a king like the other nations. And if you heard my sermon last week, God had responded by saying, kings are takers. You don't really want a king. They're going to take everything from you. But God allowed them to receive what they wanted, even though it wasn't the best, so that they may see what it is they really need. 
There's a little bit of a gap between that story and the story that we we heard today because God had already given them a king. His name was Saul. But like the kings of the nations, Saul was a taker too, and it displeased the Lord. Uh, And so God lost favor with Saul, and it was time to call a new king. And so the prophet Samuel is enlisted once again to do the Lord's prophetic work. He is sent to the house of Jesse where he is told that God will reveal to him the next king. So Samuel does just that. He enters the house of Jesse. And upon seeing Jesse's eldest son, a boy by the name of Eliab, he assumes that he has discovered the next monarch. He assumes he's standing in the presence of of the next king. But Eliab, we come to find out in the story, is not God's choice. In other words, Samuel chooses poorly. He doesn't pick the right one. And truth be told, as each one is paraded, we have this sense that he thinks, well, surely this is the one. Surely this is the king. But no, God has not chosen any of these. And in fact, in the text, God basically challenges Samuel's assumptions. Challenges his assumptions and says, do not look on Eliab's appearance or on the height of his stature because I have not chosen him. And one of the most famous lines in this book For the Lord does not see as mortals see. The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One of the most challenging features of this text for anyone who is going to give it any space to breathe in your life, if you're going to invite this text to speak into your your life and to form your faith, we, we have this realization, this hard realization that that human beings don't see things the way God sees them. That human beings don't see things the same way God sees them. I'm reminded of that famous text from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, when the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, what this text is inferring is that our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our vision is not God's vision. Our ways are not God's ways. What we're really talking about here this morning is the big idea that was, I think, phrased in in really helpful ways by the 20th century theologian Karl Barth when he said that God is holy other. That God is holy other. In fact, Bart said that God is inconceivable. What is more, no matter our spiritual maturity, and we have a lot of people who are spiritually mature and worship with us today, no matter our spiritual maturity, no matter our, our theological attentiveness, no, no matter our comprehension of the human brain or the human psyche, no matter our knowledge of creation or the created order, no matter the depth of our prayer life or the knowledge we have of the scriptures or our own personal piety, regardless of all of that, we are incapable of attaining the true knowledge of God on our own. That's what the scriptures say, that we are incapable of the true knowledge of God on our own. Even Samuel, 
right? Did you catch this? Even Samuel, the guy's got two books named for him in the Hebrew Bible. Even Samuel is not exempt from this truth. Samuel, you do not see as I see. You do not understand as I understand. You do not choose as I choose. Our family uh, did an overnight in North Carolina just Friday into Saturday. We got back just yesterday. We were in one of our favorite places in Montreat, North Carolina. Uh, and we did something that we love to do when we are in Montreat. We did a little hike to the top of Lookout Mountain. Many of you have done that hike, whether on your own uh, or with our family retreat that happens every Labor Day, uh, which we're doing again, thankfully, after missing a year this coming September. And even though this hike is only about one mile to the peak, it is a very steep climb. So it takes a little bit of stamina. It takes a little bit of energy to get to the top. And of course, like many climbs, this climb has a payoff. And that payoff is the grand view of the Seven Sister Mountains and the, the towns that sit in the valley below. Well, yesterday morning, we started our hike. It was humid. It was, it was moist. It had been raining the last uh, several days. And as we got to the peak, we immediately recognized that, that the vistas that we were used to seeing were significantly impeded by cloud cover. We, we couldn't see what we had hoped to see. What was in our control, right? What was in our control was the choice to, to embark on the hike, right? We, we made the choice to work. We, we made the, the choice to expend energy and, and to lean into our stamina to get to the top. What was not in our control was the weather totally outside of our control. We, we took the things that we could be in control of and made our way, but in the end, we were not in control of the weather, which meant that we could not see what it is that we wanted to see. And, and perhaps there is a metaphor here for our spiritual lives, right? For we can put in all the spiritual effort, and we should put in the spiritual effort. We should worship, and we should pray, and we should practice piety. We should practice the ethics of, of Jesus. We should practice radical hospitality and community and justice and life together. But in the end, knowledge of God is outside of our control. We can climb to the, to the mountain, but we still need God to make a way for us to see what God sees. The ability to see what God sees, the ability to discern who God is and what God wants is, is totally outside of our aptitude. It's totally outside of our skill. Who God is and what God wants can only be revealed, the scripture tells us, through an act of God's grace. That we only know who God is because God is gracious enough to let us know. Knowledge of God and knowledge of God's will are exclusively gifts of God's grace. Now that's not to say that we don't try to discern. That's not to say that we don't spiritually work. But it is to say that we don't come at this naturally. We don't come at this organically. We don't just show up in the world and have a sense that we can see what God sees or to know automatically what, what God wants. So some of us, I suspect, are, are, are wondering, well, so what? Like, why is that important? That's a good sort of theological concept. But, like, how does it wear shoes and walk in the world? And, 
and, and how does it walk in my life? Like, why is that theological truth important for the day-to-day living of my faith? And, and let me first suggest that, that this truth matters because it reminds us of one of the fundamental principles in our tradition. You've heard me say this a million times. You're going to hear me say it a million times more. It reminds us that we are not God. Even though we like to play God, even though we like to think we're God, it reminds us that we are not God. We don't just show up, as I, as I said, intuiting what God wants. We don't just show up intuiting what God wills. We don't just show up automatically because we're just human seeing what God sees. We're doing the things that God is calling us to do. No, we, we approach faith with a posture of humility. It's a, it's a lifelong posture of humility. It says, God, I need you to reveal yourself. In this moment of crisis, in this moment of joy, in this, in this crossroad moment, I need to see you. You, you need to, to show me who you are. You need to show me the way you're calling me to go. I cannot see it on my own. It, it calls us to this posture of humility. I need you to give me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to love the way that you love. So it matters in that it reminds us that we're not God and that we're called to a life of humility. We show up in the space of faith with a learner's disposition, knowing that only God can reveal what we need to know. But we also embrace this truth in our day-to-day living, we say that it matters because it locates Jesus Christ at the center of our faith. The Christian faith is not a general faith. The Christian faith is a very specific and particular faith. It is anchored and centers in the self-disclosure of God in and as the person of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation of Christ, in his life, in his teaching, in his love, in his justice, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, we see what God ultimately wants us to see. We see what God wants us to see. And we embrace the mission that God invites us to embrace. We we follow a way, we follow a road that God calls us to traverse. There's a a poignant piece of scripture that, that... that really tugs on my heart when it comes to driving this point home. It's five verses from Colossians, the first chapter. And, and, and pay attention to the way the writer speaks of the centrality of Christ. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Christ all things in heaven and all things on earth were created, things visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Christ himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And here it is. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to inhabit this one known as Jesus of Nazareth. And so if you you want to see what God sees, you look to Jesus. If you want to understand who God is, you you look to Jesus. If you want to know God, you you know Jesus. If if you want to live to the 
to the full, if you want to embrace the full measure of your humanity, you embrace the resurrected Christ. Because for the Christian, our faith begins and ends in him. He is the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure. So this matters because it calls us to a life of humility, a lifelong posture as a learner. Uh, we are reminded of the centrality of Christ for our faith. And finally, when we hold this truth, when we fit it with shoes and it walks in our life and, and in our faith, we're invited, I believe, to be surprised by God. We're invited to be surprised by God. So much of the world is predictable. The violence, the pain, the separation, the brokenness. And while there are certain elements of life that are most certainly unpredictable, there's so much that is predicted. I mean, our whole lives are, are now coded in algorithms. People telling us what we want before we even think we want it. We mention something out loud and all of a sudden we have an advertisement on our Facebook page through our phone. Predicting every step, geofencing, predicting where we're going to go. So much of life is predicted to fill certain roles, to fill certain places. And yet what I think this truth reminds us of is that God will smash our assumptions. That God is a God of surprise. That God is a God who will upend what we expect. And that truth is embedded in God's choice of David, right? This young and ruddy shepherd boy. Who would have thought that he would be the king? Who would have thought that he would be the chosen one? It's like the, the parable that McHenry read for us from, from Mark 4. Who would have thought that that tiny mustard seed would grow into a, such a great life-giving organism that the mustard seed would, would birth the, the kingdom of God, turned into something great? Jesus describes the kingdom of God that way, God can do something new and wild and unexpected in your life. And so I'd ask you to ask this question. If you don't ask any other question from this sermon, this is the one I would want you to, to, to think about is, is there any room in my faith these days to be surprised by God? Or is God really predictable in your life? Is there room in your faith to be astonished, to be amazed, to be the mustard seed, to be the David? to be the common and ordinary thing that God uses to do something extraordinary and great. I'll close with, with this, uh, this story. As many of you know, in our church community and the larger Atlanta community, uh, we recently laid to rest Pete Carell, a member of our congregation here at First Pres for about seven years, although Pete was self-described as a predestined Presbyterian. He loved to tell people that. He grew up in Brunswick, Georgia. His father died when he was just a boy, leaving his mother to raise him on her own. Pete had never been to the city of Atlanta to the first day. He started on a golf scholarship just across the street at Georgia Tech. He eventually finished his degree at that other Georgia university just east of here in Athens. Pete, upon graduation and upon graduating from graduate school in Maine, he, he, he started to work in the paper industry. He was moving from state to state as his career sort of followed an upward trajectory. Eventually, he became the CEO of Georgia Pacific. 
But what Pete was most proud of outside of his family, and he would tell anybody this in recent days, the thing he was most proud of was his work in helping to save Grady Hospital. Pete had a vision that God gave him, that only God could give him, that astonished him, that surprised him, that this vision said that if Atlanta's going to be a good city, if it's going to continue to be a great city, then it's going to need to have a great and good hospital. And Grady was on the precipice of bankruptcy. It was on the verge of collapse when God gave Pete this vision. In preparation for Pete's service, a few weeks before he died, he gave me a letter that he wanted me to read. And in true Pete Carell fashion, he was going to get the last word at his funeral. And this was just an excerpt that I think fits so well with with what I think the Spirit is leading us to consider today. Pete said, all my life I've known that God put me on this earth to do something. I just never really knew what that was. Clearly, Grady was it. He said, how else can you explain a poor southern boy raised by a single parent in Brunswick, Georgia, never having been to Atlanta, being the catalyst to drive Grady? God must have been preparing me for this my whole life. He said, think about it. This poor boy led a group of Atlanta business folk to save Grady Hospital. How unthinkable is that? Especially without a plan. When people say to me, God does not have a plan for everyone's life, I want to laugh in their face. When God led me all over the USA, God was preparing me for one task, to save Grady Hospital. That was 70 years after I was born. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the definition of long-term planning. And what God has in store for you in your life if you choose to follow God's direction. You can hear the surprise in his words, right? I mean, he was like a David kind of choice. He was a mustard seed kind of choice. And make note that that God's revelation to him in terms of his purpose didn't come when he was 15 or 25 or 45 or 55. There's folks who are struggling with their purpose right now. People tell you his purpose wasn't solidified until he was 70 years old. His purpose wasn't to make all this money. His purpose wasn't to be the CEO of Georgia Pacific. God revealed that his purpose was to save Grady Hospital. And all those other things led to that call. 70 years old. Friends, discernment is a long game. It's a long game. And so I encourage us all to to stay humble. Remember that God is God and that we're not. And that we don't come at this organically or naturally. Put Jesus Christ at the center of your faith. For he is God's self-disclosure to the world. He's what we need to know. He's who we need to see. He's who we need to listen to. And finally, be ready to be surprised. Open yourself up in your faith and in your life to be surprised, to be amazed, to be astonished at what God is going to show you and what God is going to call you to. May we embrace such a truth and live such a faith for the sake of the gospel And for the sake of the world, may it be so, and all of God's people say, Amen.